five and going through to the end of the chapter. So if you've got your Bibles, feel free to open and follow along, um, but otherwise it is up on the screen. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea of Pi-Harioth, opposite Baal-Zebron. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on, raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when, they, when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and the horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been travelling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it into dry ground. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, 
so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. None of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on the right and on the left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and, his, and in Moses, his servant. Thanks, Laura. She reads the Bible, she sings, she leads the service. <laughs> soon, soon, a couple of weeks. Um, and this is after uh, her day yesterday. She went on a, a 28-kilometre hike the whole day uh, from 9am. Uh, I say 28 kilometres. Uh, they got a bit lost, so it ended up being 34 kilometres. <laughs> Uh, they walked about two or three k's and were like, oh, hang on, this is the wrong way. And so they turn around and go back to find their way back to the path. Uh, that's that extra hour. Which is actually a great segue. People kind of looking like they've headed the wrong way. Uh, that's exactly kind of what happens in, this past, in the story that we heard today. Just before that, the Israelites have been, have been marched out of Egypt. The last time we were in Exodus, we heard about the Passover. And it got to the end and Pharaoh was like, Get out! Go! Uh, and God was taking his people to the land that he had promised them. So we're going to be up the first slide. Thanks, James. Uh, this is kind of the area. You see Goshen at the top there in Egypt. Uh, and so this is kind of where they were, Ramesses, Succoth, that kind of area. But you see that way of the Philistines is actually the shortest, quickest, and most worn path which would take them to where God had promised the land that he had promised them. That kind of, if you're going up, that kind of the start of Israel at the top on the right there, that's where God was going to be taking them to. And so this is the most direct, the easiest way to get there. Uh, Travelling this route, however, would have guaranteed conflict with the Egyptian guards. This road was very well manned uh, and had, would have had uh, armed guards stationing the roads in different points uh, in case any armies from the north decided to come down, it would allow them to kind of inform Egypt what was happening but also be able to provide some defence before they got there. So trying to travel that path would have led to conflict uh, all the way at each step. Uh, it was the shortest path, but it's actually not God's path. And that's what we're going to be thinking about and looking at today, is that sometimes God may take us on a seemingly roundabout way to our destination. Uh, it may even look wrong. It may seem confused. Sometimes God wants to achieve something bigger and better than what we can see. I imagine if you were one of the Israelites, you're like, if we're going there, that's the road. And then you start getting marched around through the desert, kind of 
And you're like, this isn't, the, this isn't the way. This isn't where we're supposed to be going. I'm not sure if you've ever felt like that uh, or felt like God's taking a bit of a roundabout way. Um, and there's some confusion about the route the Israelites took. So if we go to the next uh, map, you can see this one here. This is kind of one person's thoughts about the route they would have taken. You've got the Sukkoth there again, coming from Ramesses. Uh, and so you kind of see them, they're kind of, rather than going that route on that road which is going to take them, uh, the road of the Philistines, they're actually kind of heading south. And they're kind of heading down towards the, the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds. And it kind of is a bit confusing where they're kind of wandering around the place. Uh, you can see some of the landmarks that are mentioned in chapters 13 and 14. Uh, and in some ways, the, the exact route, or there's, there's a, a north point where they cross the Red Sea, and there's a south kind of idea, and they're not entirely sure. Uh, and I don't know if it necessarily matters. Both ways take them across the Red Sea at some point, and they end up heading down to the Sinai Peninsula, uh, down to Mount Sinai, uh, before then heading and wandering around the desert uh, before making it to the Promised Land. Um, but the point is that kind of when they leave Egypt, they kind of don't head the regular route that you'd expect. Uh, I think actually the next map uh, shows it slightly better. You can understand why I didn't pick this as the main one. Uh, it's not the easiest to see, but kind of in that, yeah, the, the scribble. Um, but kind of over here at the Red Sea, you kind of you can see they kind of walk down to a spot and they kind of almost cut back. And it actually says in Exodus 13 that the, the Pharaoh saw them and thought that they must be lost. And it's like, what are they doing? And that's why he kind of goes and pursues them and decides, because they're kind of wandering around, they kind of, they look a bit lost. And I think that map catches, captures that idea a bit better than that first map does. And so Pharaoh sees them, God hardens his heart, and he goes, what have I done? My slaves are gone. This is a huge financial economic issue that he's just allowed all these people to leave. And so he decides, I'm going to go and get him back. And so he gets 600 of his chariots, possibly more than 600, over 600 uh, of his chariots to go and round them up. Uh, I think the next slide might have a picture of an Egyptian chariot. I've done, I read a, a fascinating, fascinating article during the week uh, about chariots and Egypt. So... Uh, one of the Egyptian chariots was kind of the peak pinnacle weapon of warfare for the Egyptians. Um, a chariot would have been perhaps the equivalent of like a modern day tank. Uh, each chariot had two people on it. You had somebody whose job it was to steer and to uh, determine the pace with the horses and the other person whose job it was to shoot with a bow and arrow, sometimes with a spear. Uh, spears had the issue of the fact that you had to get closer for them to be able to impact the damage, whereas arrows could be shot from a much further distance. But it would ensure safety for the people on board because if you're coming against people like the, Egypt, like the Israelites, who were, in essence, sheep herders, without necessarily great armour or great weaponry, You've then got 600 of these things being sent, which can attack from a safe distance. They can attack quickly, and they're deadly. Uh, the Egyptian chariot was the pinnacle of warfare. <coughs> and it had been designed that way because about three or 400 years prior 
to the events in Exodus, Egypt had had uh, its own issue with chariots. Uh, a foreign nation had attacked Egypt using chariots and it actually managed to achieve some victories over them and actually managed to gain some power in Egypt. And it took about 200 years uh, for the Egyptians to be able to rise up and kind of conquer, reconquer the land and kind of push these uh, invading nations out from their, from their cities. And they did it by using the chariot. They kind of, they perfected the design of the chariot. They moved the axle further back. They made it out of lighter equipment uh, so it could be carried easily. It could be maneuvered quicker. It could go over terrain that other chariots couldn't. Uh, the fact that Egypt had all these chariots was how they managed to maintain being the world power that they did for so long because they had perfected this design and this was a scary implement of war. And here, Pharaoh sends over 600. It says 600 is a battalion of chariots and then it also kind of says and all the chariots in, uh, in Egypt. There's some, there's some debate whether that's all other chariots or whether that's charioteers, kind of the people who are, are supposed to kind of ride upon them. But either way, there's a lot of these weapons of war riding towards a bunch of fairly unarmed, helpless people that had been slaves and they'd managed to escape with literally the possessions on their back. And here they are having these war weapons sent after them to round them up and bring them back as slaves. I can understand why the Israelites would have felt dismay in the face of what was happening. Uh, you can also understand it when you kind of look at where they are moving to. Do we actually have... The, what's the next slide? Oh, yeah, this is good. Uh, you can see kind of where they are, where they kind of have been marched... Uh, mar <laughs> I put them together. Sort of <laughs> I just didn't, don't exactly remember the order. Anyway, uh, so kind of they marched down... Uh, and you can see that they've got that eastern desert beneath them, kind of from where they're kind of to the south of them. Uh, Pharaoh is coming from uh, kind of from the north, kind of there. So his kind of army is marching out towards them. And so they're somewhat hemmed in. They've got 600 weapons of war and all the troops heading towards them. On one side, they've got uh, a body of water. On the south, they've got a desert where they're going to go and they would literally die and so they're kind of stuck and and they look at the situation and they look at what's going on and they say to Moses in verses 11 to 12 in their most calm level-headed manner was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Very level-headed. Uh, they turn on Moses and they turn on God. Uh, what I, is fantastic about this passage is I absolutely love God's response in verses 13 and 14. In, verse, uh, in chapter 14, verse 13, God says, Do not be afraid. Stand firm 
and you will see the deliverance the Lord, Yahweh, will bring you today. Exodus chapter 14, verse 14 says to them, you need only be still. When I looked up these passages, I did a bit of a, an image search to see kind of what sort of images would come up. Uh, this is the first one. This is a quilt. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. If you would like that design in a quilt, uh, you can purchase that on eBay. Uh, it's, very, very, it's very lovely. Uh, lots of flowers. Uh, who doesn't love that? The next one. Uh, oh, that's nice. Uh, looks very uh, peaceful, uh, very serene. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Um, the, the beast, you only need to be still. I had a bit of a look up to see if I could work out what this, um, what this actually would translate as. Uh, the, the more literal translation of the Hebrew might be, uh, oh, yep, stand still and see the salvation of Yahweh. Uh, so that's the word. Uh, the word is taharisan, which the direct translation is hold your peace. So you only need to stand still, hold your peace. Uh, it's interesting to see some of the different ways the different versions of the Bible translate this. So the one that was read out to us, the NIV, you only need to be still. And that's the one that's on the quilt and the one on the peaceful river. You only need to be still. Uh, the next one is the CV, the, often the one that gets given to children, uh, one of the first Bibles that people might receive. And it says, you won't have to do a thing. It's a, a valid translation. The last translation is the message. You keep your mouth shut. Which, if you're kind of getting the hold your peace, it almost feels like a, a parent speaking to a child who's chucking a bit of a tantrum and then just saying, just, just hold your peace, right? I got this. Which I think all of those can be valid translations. Um, I guess the point is that God's got it. And the Israelites are there and they're worried about how it's going to happen. And God's like... Stop. Hold your peace. Be still. Don't have to do a thing. Sh keep your mouth shut. Either way, it's the idea, I've got this, guys. You're about to see this. You're about to see God's going to do this for you. And then Moses goes to God, and God's like, what are you doing standing around yapping? Get going. Raise your, your staff. Raise your hand. Let's move. And so that's what he does. And the moment he does this, a strong east wind starts up. And in the morning, there is dry land for the people to walk across. Then, when the Egyptian army pursues the Israelites through this passage onto this dry land, Moses raises up his hand again and the water rushes back. God delivers on his promise in a miraculous, spectacular way. And what have the Israelites had to do? Nothing. Just had to wait. God was going to do it. And all they had to do was watch and wait for God to achieve their salvation. Now, um, some people over time have tried to pour a bit of uh, water. <laughs> Get that? It's a great pun. Uh, just so you know, I've got a whole list of like, 
uh, puns in my mind <laughs> right now, but uh, uh, for your sake, I'll be straight and I'll keep this flowing. Um, uh, thanks, James. Uh, back to my point. Uh, this is kind of what they think it could have looked like. Uh, similar simulations by US scientists show uh, how the movement of wind could have actually opened up a land bridge at one particular location in the Red Sea. So they've actually been able to kind of analyze the topography of the area, the, the riverbanks, uh, and think about the, how it would have impacted if a strong wind had been blowing. And they've been able to actually reproduce this, and that it, they've shown that if a strong east wind were to blow overnight, it could have pushed the water back at a bend where an ancient river is believed to have merged with a coastal lagoon. So this is actually, actually physically and theoretically possible. I'm actually okay with this fact. Uh, I don't actually think it takes away from how incredible God is and the fact that God has achieved this amazing, miraculous thing. Because uh, it's worth noting, it would have required winds of like 100 kilometers an hour. And the Bible records that these winds began the moment Moses raised his staff and his hand over the water, and they stopped the moment Moses raised his hand and his staff over the water on the other side. And the moment these winds die down, scientists have been able to work out, is the moment the water would have rushed back. The moment the wind eases is the moment the water goes back. It doesn't, it's just being held there by this strong wind, but the moment that wind stops, the water just instantly goes straight back. Uh, the other thing to note is that this happened at an exact moment in human history where this nation of slaves had walked themselves out to this exact point and then they managed to walk across when it was dry and then when the chasing army went through, it just so happened at that exact same moment, the wind stopped blowing and for them to all be caught in the sea as it rushed back. The people who experienced this event, they certainly weren't in any doubt about what just happened. Yes, there was a strong wind. Yes, that could have explained it, but they were in no doubt about where this wind came from. They were in no doubt about who was behind this. In verse 30, it says, When the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. I believe that God has the capacity to use natural phenomena to achieve his goals and his plans. I think sometimes in our life, we're looking for these miraculous, supernatural sort of things. And sometimes God chooses to use everyday events, everyday things to achieve his purposes. A strong wind blowing for long enough achieves miraculous salvation for the Israelites. The fact that there is feasible scientific explanation doesn't diminish the miracle of God using this to rescue his people from death to life. And this is a key theme here in this moment. Life through death. First, you have the situation that the Israelites found themselves in, being pursued by an army that was far superior, far mightier, far more powerful. 
being hemmed in with no escape, a hopeless situation that was going to lead to death for many of these people and further slavery and oppression for those who do survive. Yet, where there is no way, God makes a way. Out of death, he brings life. Secondly, Israel's new life is guaranteed by the death of the pursuing army. That actually mentions the bodies on the banks of the river as a visual cue of God's bringing salvation and life to his people. Life through death. I actually think there's an intentional juxtaposition of death and life as we read this story. Israel were in a position that was to lead to death. And Egypt was in a position to strengthen their life by having their slaves back, by squishing this rebellion. But God flips the the script and Israel is granted life and freedom while the pursuing Egyptian army ends dead on the riverbanks. Life through death. This isn't the only time that God does this. I can think of another time when things look lost. They seem hopeless, and yet God brought life out of death. It's actually the central truth of what we believe. The cross which hangs on the wall over there. It's the Easter story we celebrate every year when we remember the Passover lamb, the parallels between Exodus and the core of the Christian faith once again shine through. We have seen how the Passover lamb foreshadows Jesus' death for us. Here again, we have this miraculous rescue and salvation that foreshadows not just Jesus' death, but also his resurrection. Do we have the next slide there, James? This hopeless situation where you read it in the Gospels and the disciples are dismayed. All hope is lost. Their Lord, their leader, the Saviour, the one who they thought was the Messiah, is dead. They feel like it's over. And yet, that's not the end of the story. Jesus is raised back to life. God brings life through death. Jesus conquers life's greatest enemy. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses uh, 45 to 47. Actually, all of 1 Corinthians 15 is amazing. Read it all, but I just want to read you these uh, words. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Life through death. All seem lost, but God flips the script and brings life from death. This is his people's salvation. Through Jesus' death, we receive salvation. Through his resurrection, we receive the assurance of life forever 
for us. Just like the people, we actually don't contribute anything to this salvation. We just need to stand still and see the salvation of Yahweh. We don't have to do a thing. Just shut our mouths and just know God's done it. It's not something that is on us. Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Life through death. The Israelites walk on dry ground with water to the left of them and to the right. I imagine what it would look like as they were walking through. Whether there was a, a literal water, wall of water, scientists aren't really sure that's kind of how it looked, but if you're walking through it and you look to the left, all you're seeing is water. Whether that's kind of going slowly outwards or whether it's going straight up, it's going to look like a wall of water to you as you walk through that. And so as you walk through, each way there's just water and yet you just, you've got your path. God's made a way where it didn't seem possible. It's a symbol which is still used, utilized even today in, this Christian, in the Christian faith. This idea of passing through water from death to life. It is actually what we still celebrate and we still acknowledge in baptism. And actually we see this not just in baptism, not just at the Red Sea. We actually see many occasions where God uses water to bring life through death. Actually, this Red Sea incident isn't even the first time. You know, you've got Noah and the ark, where literally Noah and his family get on the boat, the shape of a coffin, and God brings life through death. They pass through the waters, and there is new life. In Exodus, we have the people and they pass through on dry land with a water on either side of them, and God brings death, God brings life through death. We're actually going to have an opportunity in a few weeks. The Baptist Church in South Australia are running uh, a weekend uh, where they're calling it Baptism Sunday. Um, I love baptism. I think baptism is such a beautiful, such a powerful symbol for the person being baptized, but it's also such an amazing reminder. It's a reminder for those of us who have been baptised of what's happened for us. That we have passed from death to life. That we have gone under the waters in baptism. We've died to our old self and we are a new person, a new creation in Jesus. That's what this passage reminds us of and points us towards. The truth that we don't have to do a thing. God does it for us. God, Yahweh, achieves salvation for his people. Now, it might not always look like we expect. Sometimes we might be wandering around, feeling confused. But we need to remember God's plans and his ways are bigger and better than us. When we are face suffering and adversity in life, which we all will, we can take comfort in stories like this, which show us that God's got it. 
God is in control and he is working for his purposes. We can celebrate this together as we come in a few weeks for Baptism Sunday. Whether anyone is actually going to be baptised on that day or not, we're still going to have a day where we focus on baptism. If you would like to be baptised, that would be an amazing opportunity. Please come and speak to me if that's something you would like uh, to explore more about uh, because that's going to be an opportunity for us to be reminded of this story once again, be reminded of God's goodness and his grace, the fact that he brings life through death. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your power and your strength. We thank you that our salvation is not based on anything that we do that we can just know it's all been done by you and we can trust in you and what you have done for us. We thank you that you are the one who brings life through death. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death and his resurrection and we take hold of that knowing that is our salvation. Amen.